your Bibles now and let's open them to Philippians chapter 2. This evening we are beginning the second chapter. And this really should be, uh, as we get into this a little bit later on, will be some familiar territory to you. Uh, You may recognize this passage of Scripture, at least you should, because we refer back to this particular chapter often when we speak about the uh, great condescension of Christ and his humility and stepping down from the throne of heaven to come to this earth. Uh, Paul talks about that in verses 6 through 8. And then right after that, he speaks of the exaltation of Christ, And that is in verses 9 through 11, and that's where we're told that all the world will bow down and worship Jesus Christ as king and declare him to be the Lord. Those particular verses, I I think, are enthralling to us. I've so much enjoyed, I've already written the messages on that, and I so much enjoyed studying that particular portion of the scripture. But before we get down to that, we have verses 1 through 4 in this chapter, and In these verses, Paul tells us that we need to have the same kind of humility, the same type of character that Christ had that enabled him to step down to that throne and to come to this earth. The first part of the chapter is about Christian unity. And if we have humility as we should have it, the inevitable result of that humility is that we will be a unified people. Now this evening, I want to look at some arguments that Paul makes for unity. And we're going to study just the two verses of the chapter this evening. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll come back and we'll look at verses 3 and 4 before we actually enter into the next section there, beginning with verse 5, as we talk about the the, uh, humility of Christ and then the exaltation of Christ. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're just going to read these two verses to start with. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for each one who's come tonight. I just ask you, Lord, you'd help us as we uh, declare your word and explain these verses. And Lord, I pray that the attitude that the Apostle Paul says that we should have, will be apparent in in the lives of your people. Just bless in the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go right back up here into chapter 1 in verse number 27, because in, in, in verse number 27, Paul gives us the foundation for our Christian unity. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now that that last part there is especially important to us. As he says, you stand fast, that you will stand fast with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the foundation of the Christian unity that we have. The foundation uh, for all of this that we're talking about tonight, the bond that exists among Christians, is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're knit together by that common bond. It's what we believe about Christ and salvation. And not only that, but also the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit within every Christian. Now, I told you last week that the word spirit there in verse number 27 is not talking about the Holy Spirit, and uh, 
The reason that we know that, because one of the reasons is because the Spirit there is not capitalized. But what he's talking about here is that unity of communion between fellow Christians. Now, it certainly is true, though, that the Holy Spirit is the, the strength of that union and will only be unified as we decide that we're, we're going to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And whenever we decide to step out of the pathway where the Holy Spirit is leading, to that degree we will no longer be a unified people and our unity just begins to break down. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. There we see that Jesus is bound to his heavenly Father with identical purposes. They think the same thing, they have the same mind, they have the same will. And what we are to have is to have a will and a mind and thoughts that are the same with one another. And it's very obvious that we're very different people. Uh, we have uh, a diversity of people in our congregation. We have various wills. But what we must do in order to be a unified people is to have our will to be identical with that of the Father and of Jesus Christ. And the way that we do that is to have the Holy Spirit in us. And when our will is identical to the Holy Spirit, it will be, in turn, identical with that of the Father and of the Son. Unity is a very common theme in, in Paul's writings. Uh, disunity is a very dangerous thing for a church. And so, in his writing to churches, Paul, in every letter, deals to some degree or another with this issue of unity. And the picture that we get is, is that of um, hitching a horse to a wagon or hitching a team of horses to a wagon. When you do that, you don't put one horse in front of the wagon and one on the tie one to the left side of the wagon and one to the right and put a horse behind you. The thing that you do is you put all of the horses together, you put them in front of the wagon, and then those horses begin to pull as a team. And this is exactly the kind of idea that Paul has in these scriptures. We must be unified in order to go forth as a team, traveling in the right direction with the same mind and the same purpose. So we're going to take a few minutes tonight to look at this. And first of all tonight, I want to speak to you about reasons for unity. And some of that should already be clear to you. It really doesn't need a lot of explanation because we know that when there are divisions among God's people and when people are of different opinions about many different issues, it affects the way that we get things done. Your household cannot run without unity. Our government doesn't run without unity. Even though there are a lot of different ideas in politics, uh, you know, people have many different opinions about how that we should run our country. But at some point, there has to be some convergence. I mean, there has to be mutual agreement in certain areas or we never get any laws passed. There are no budgets that would ever be approved. And we just have chaos in government. So that aspect of it, we understand very well. We have to have unity in order to get things done. The standard, of course, that we follow for unity is what we read in the Word of God. And on the core essentials of God's word, we have to be, be in agreement. I mean, there's really no question about that. We can't be unified in any sense of the word with people who would treat, uh, teach wrongly about salvation. If they have a different idea about our justification, they don't even understand uh, what we're teaching when we talk about the doctrine of the church, then we're not going to be able to be in agreement with those kinds of people. And we're going to divide with anyone who doesn't agree with us on those core essential doctrines of the faith. 
But when Paul's speaking about unity here, he already assumes that these people agree with those things. These major doctrines, uh, they will be in unity on. I mean, they, they, it's the same faith of the gospel. There's that justification I spoke of, and, and there's doctrines of the church, and, and there's salvation. Of course, they're going to be agreed on those things. But what he's really talking about here is when we have dividing issues that are non-essential items, things that we really don't need to be fighting about. Not salvation itself and not what we believe, as I said, about justification in the church. But we're talking about things that are personal taste. Now, some people are very adamant and have strong opinions about personal taste. And they worry about things like what color the carpet is in the church and and what color the, 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 the curtain over there is supposed to be. They worry about what kind of musical instruments are we going to use. And they fuss about certain ones and say we ought not to use them. Well, the thing is that these non-essential issues have to be laid aside in favor of what the leadership of your church and we as a people generally agree on. There must be a consensus on those things, and we're never to let those kinds of non-essential issues uh, just be be the thing that controls and runs everything that we do. But I don't really want to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, we, We could spend all night you know, talking about whether you like blue chairs and whether you like gray paint on the walls, whatever color it is. We could talk about that, but that's not where we want to dwell. I want to dwell tonight on, on these statements that Paul makes here in these verses about reasons for unity. And he does give us four specific reasons for unity in verse number one. The first one is full persuasion. He says, "...if there be therefore any consolation in Christ." And I want you to look at that little word if there that begins that. That is not a speculative if. It doesn't mean that what he's saying here may or may not be true. It's not speculative. And to state state this in the way that Paul intends, then we would say to have unity of the Spirit, or we have unity of the Spirit and mind, and so therefore we have consolation in Christ. Therefore, refers back to chapter 1, verse number 27, where he gave us that that command for unity. And if we do have unity, we'll have proper relationships. So there are four ifs that are spoken of in this verse, and all of these ifs are argumentative. And what he means is, when these conditions exist, his argument is that, therefore, we will be able to live in peace and harmony with one another. So let's look at the statements. The first one is, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. The word consolation is usually interpreted in this passage to mean exhortation. And what he means is, if the words of Christ are persuasive words, if the words of the gospel and the message of the gospel is true, if you can count those things as anything, if they are to be believed then they are exhortations to unity. If Christ tells you to do this and you honor his word as you should, then you'll do whatever it takes in order to be of one mind and to be of one heart, and this will cause you to conduct yourself in such a manner that you are worthy of the gospel. Now, we really need to strongly consider that when I preach the word and when you read the word to understand that there is something here bigger than you and me. Something bigger is taking place here. There's a cause that's more significant than any other cause that's ever been advanced. There is a, a, a hope here that's greater than anything that was ever hoped for. There's something here to strive for that's more important than anything that was ever fought for. 
And that is the gospel of Christ. So the issue here, as Paul sees it, is how can we achieve our personal happiness? How can we be happy in what we do? How can we get there by doing what comes next? And I'm going to tell you what he's talking about. He's speaking of putting yourself secondary to the cause of Christ. How can you be happy when you put yourself behind the cause of Christ, secondary to it, but not only that, secondary to other believers? That's not a natural thing for us to do. It's not inherent in us. It's not ingrained to our human psyche like selfishness and, and, and pride are, are ingrained in us. It's just not there. So this is something that we must be persuaded of. It takes something stronger outside of us to do that, and we won't be fully persuaded if we're not fully surrendered to the Spirit of God. So the gospel of Christ is what he's arguing should produce this effect. And if it doesn't, then you're not living out the admonition in verse number 27 where he says to let your conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. You won't have unity in the Spirit. So we can't be divided over these things and we can't honor the Lord Jesus Christ at the very same time. So if Christ's words and the gospel mean anything to you, if there is any persuasion in those words, then that's a reason to be unified. The second reason he gives us is flowing love. He says, if any comfort of love. And so he means not only to accentuate the, uh, the persuasiveness of Christ's words in the gospel, but also the love that freely flows through the gospel. See, the gospel came to us in love. The scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The grace of God and salvation came to us when we were sinners. The scripture says in Romans, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if, if, if God had nothing to look to in us that would cause Jesus to come, that would cause him to send his son, if he hated us, or if we hated him rather, and the only motivation that God could have for sending Christ into the world was the love that he had for us, not our love for him, is that not a reason, he argues, to respond to your Christian brother in love. Can you forgive your brother? Can you overlook his faults? Can you let those kinds of things stand in your way of the communion that you should have with him? When God has forgiven you of so much, is the argument that he's making, how can you not also forgive your brother? And further than that, if God saved you, and now in spite of all of your faults, and the fact that you still do sin against him, there is still disobedience. And if God still showers down love and blessing upon you, why can't you share God's love with others? Can you be selfish, is the argument, when God has been so gracious? So these are his arguments. These are things that are inducives and incentives to act rightly towards one another in this spirit of unity. Love was a strong motivator for Paul. I mean, this is what caused him to just do things that are contrary to the traits of human survival. I mean, he would get up from one beating after preaching the gospel and just head off to the next one. What causes somebody to do that? He's motivated by love. Now, he says an interesting thing in Romans chapter 9. There he wrote, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, 
that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. There are some people who wrongly misinterpret this verse, and they're not looking at Paul's love correctly, because they say that what Paul means is he was willing to forgo, willing to give up even his own salvation, if that meant that he could win the Jews to Christ. Paul never thought things like that. And I say he didn't think that way because that would mean that his love for the Jews was greater than his love for Christ, if that was true. So he's not saying it that way. What he means is, if it were possible for him to take the punishment of their unbelief, he would gladly do so. He would give up his life. He was willing to do that for his people. The only thing that could motivate that kind of love would have to be a fanatical love for Christ. I mean, it would have to be a love that shows such gratitude that Paul says, if I can be an atonement for someone else's sin and die like Christ died, I would be willing to do that if that would help to save them. Now, folks, that is the recognition of how undeserving that Paul truly thought that he was. He did not deserve Christ's love. He never thought that he deserved it. And that's the willingness to give up yourself completely. He was willing to give up himself, whatever it took, to bring the unity of faith to the Jews. So the question for us is, do we have enough love when we're not even asked, ever asked to even do such things? Do we not have enough love that we can have unity with other believers? So that's Paul's argument. But then he goes on. Thirdly, is fellowship in the Spirit. He says, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, what's the persuasiveness of this argument? Well, it is that every believer has the indwelling Spirit. We've already discussed that that's the foundation of our unity. Uh, There's the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're all together. They are unified. But it's peculiarly the work of the Holy Spirit to knit us together. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, to work in our hearts The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. He works in the heart of the believer. And that's what the Bible terms the Spirit of Christ. Now, it's called the Spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit has taken the place of Christ in our hearts. Not that they're not one and the same, but the the Son has gone back to the Heavenly Father and promised to send the comfort that would come to us. And so we have the Spirit of Christ in us, which is the Holy Spirit. So there's that common bond... Even though we're so diverse racially and, 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 and economically, nationally, yet no matter where you go in the world, we are still one in the Spirit. All true believers have this in common. That's the experience that we have of Christ as our Savior and the indwelling of the Spirit. Now, what does the, the Scripture teach that we have in common with other believers because of the Spirit? Well, obviously, number one, we would think, well, salvation, that would be something that we have in common. It's the same spirit that regenerated all of us. It's the same spirit who actually uh, changed our will, who illumined our minds to the gospel of Christ. The same spirit works in all of us in that way. But he goes further here. I mean, the scriptures go even further than that in, in talking about our common experience. Number one, the scriptures teach that we are his temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of us have become his temple. I mean, if you're a believer, the Bible says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? 
You see, the Spirit of God is not so diverse that he shares his temple with some other god. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel was always mixing up things and trying to do that. There were times when they even tried to take the temple of God and make that a place where they could worship pagan idols at the same time. God would not allow them to do that. And in fact, he stated it very simply, very explicitly to them, and they still got it mixed up a lot of times. Here's what he told them in Exodus chapter 20. He said, I am the Lord thy God. And he says, I'm the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So he says, I am a jealous God. I'm just not going to permit the, permit the presence of any imagined deity in my temples. And so God forbid Israel to worship any other God but him in that temple or in any other place. And so what he's showing us here is that we have uniquely become the habitation of the Spirit. He will not permit, he will not stay in a place, and that means in your body, he will not stay there. He does not allow other gods to be our God. Now, this is why when you go to places like uh, India, for instance, that missionaries will try to rack up their converts but what, what, and keep those numbers going all the time and report how many people have been saved. But many times all that they've done is they've just received, or I should say, in this case, accepted rather than received. They have just accepted Jesus Christ as one of their other gods or one of their many gods. That does not work. As Christians, we are uniquely the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the basis of our fellowship is in that one spirit. So you never have to wonder about this. If, if, if a person is a real Christian, if they are a true believer in Christ, there will not be any other deity to which he can give allegiance. Now, as politically correct as it might be for Christians in this nation to acknowledge Allah, or acknowledge some other God just because we think it's, the, it's a, the popular thing to do. God does not permit that. We cannot acknowledge any other God but Jesus Christ alone. Now, number two, the Holy Spirit is our seal. And that's another way that we have commonality in one spirit, and that is that we have the guarantee of resurrection. All of those that are in the Spirit will be in the first resurrection. Now, the Spirit then is God's seal and the pledge that as believers in him, we will be raised from the dead. That's stated in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now, what he's talking about, the purchased possession is the body of a Christian. Now, your body, or I should say your soul and your spirit, those have already been redeemed. That happens at your conversion. There's, there's that automatic change. But what's yet to be redeemed is your body. Now, the body's already been purchased. I mean, that, that's also purchased in salvation, but the body has not yet been redeemed. And so it goes into the grave, awaiting the resurrection, 
And then the body will be fully redeemed at that time. And that's what we call glorification. So every person who has this spirit has that seal. He has this guarantee, a seal of God the Father and the mark of ownership of Jesus Christ, which says, this body belongs to me. So the body that you inhabit, it has been purchased by Christ. It's just waiting to be redeemed. But that's not all. There's also the intercession of the Holy Spirit. He is our intercessor. And every Christian has the Spirit to intercede for him. Romans 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Every Christian, no matter who you are, you have the availability of the Holy Spirit in your times of weakness. And that means that you have the Spirit in your spiritual weakness, spirit, when you need him there, you have him in times of moral weakness, and you can even have the spirit or do have the spirit in times of physical weakness. Now, when we talk about spiritually, there are times that you may want to pray, and you're burdened down so strongly, the burden is so great that you don't even know how to express what you need from God. The Holy Spirit comes at that time, and he's able to make those requests known to the Father. Morally, We have times of weakness when we're tempted to do things that we shouldn't. And in those times of temptation, the Bible says that the Spirit makes a way for us to escape. He always provides, you know, we preached about this uh, several weeks or several months ago, perhaps it was, about the exit door that the Holy Spirit always provides for a Christian when he's in temptation. And then physically, there are also times of physical weakness when it just seems that you can't go on that the Holy Spirit can bear us up and give us the stamina that we need to continue. I experience this a lot. There are times when um, I'm preparing sermons, and it just seems like I can't turn out one more sermon. I mean, I week after week after week after week, you're writing these things, and you come to the place, I can't do another sermon. And your mind just gets stuck, and you're physically tired, and you can't do it. And so many times... I still deliver three sermons every week uh, you know, when I'm here. And, and, and the Spirit comes and the thoughts start flowing again. He always takes care of that. Well, Paul says that every Christian has this fellowship of the Spirit. And he's telling us that if the Holy Spirit does all this for us, if we have all these things that the Spirit is doing for us, is that not an incentive for us? Shouldn't we all be unified because the Holy Spirit is working in us all? And if we're following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, all of us are going to end up in the same place because the Holy Spirit doesn't lead you off in one direction and me off into another. So these are his arguments, full persuasion, flowing love, and the fellowship of the Spirit. But yet he has still another argument in verse number 1, and these are feelings of affection. He says, if any bowels and mercies... Now, that's not an expression that we use anymore today. Usually when we talk about bowels, it's for a much different purpose. And uh, we're certainly not talking about what Paul's talking about. But in Paul's day, when he spoke of the bowels, he's talking about our, our seed of affections. Back then, they believed that because you, when you're worried about something or when something's really bothering you, you feel it down in this area. And so they thought that your emotions were centered there in your bowels. Now, I'm giving an example Uh, Some of you teenagers will 
probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you are a little bit too young for this. And uh, you adults, you may have to think back a few years to get where I'm going. But um, did you ever like a boy or a girl so much that being apart from them just seemed to tear you apart? I mean, you could just feel it right down in here. I mean, you just didn't like to be away from somebody. You know, when teenagers have this love, quote-unquote love, for one another, they start feeling that so deeply, and they can't stand to be away from that other person. You know, we we, we still use the terminology today. We say that is a gut-wrenching experience. And And it comes from the same thing that Paul's talking about here, the vows. I remember when my wife and I were dating, um, uh, hasn't been all that long ago. Uh, we were dating, and uh, we got married when she was 19, and, and I was 20. That would be about 1995, if I remember correctly. And uh, so we we were dating, and and uh, her stepfather worked for IBM. They had a big plant, IBM plant there in Lexington, and it wasn't uncommon for them to for people to transfer out of there and to go to other places. So her stepfather was considering a, a transfer to Florida. And so that meant if she was, she was going to move away, and then we, had, we weren't married at that time, but I loved her, and I just couldn't stand the thoughts of that, that she was going to go away and I might not ever see her again. And even times, you know, when I was, when I was that young, uh, I, well, I still like to be with my wife, but, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're at that age... It's, I don't know, it's a totally different experience for some reason, kind of a different feeling. And, and you, can't, you can't really stand to be apart from that person. I mean, you get in the car, and what do you do? I mean, you get all so close to them, you shoved them practically out the window, and, and you, you can't get close enough to that person. If you had two arms and you could still drive, you'd have both arms around that person, and you'd have your legs lock one another as you're driving down the highway and everything else. I mean, you've just got to be with that person. So that's that That's that gut-wrenching feeling. That that's, comes from right down here. And that's exactly what the Paul, Paul means when he says the bowels. That's what he's referring to. So Paul's point here is that Christians should have strong feelings of affection. That when you have Christ come into your heart, you have this strong bond that exists with him, and he puts that love into your heart, and you're to have that love for other Christians. The Bible calls it in some places being kindly affectionate towards one another. And so you get those very same kinds of feelings that you really want to be around other Christians because of that affection. The day that I was, I think it was the day after, it would be the day after I was working on this sermon. I'm sorry, the day before I was working on this sermon, we had a deacon's meeting. And what we do is usually is we uh, have a few of us to go out to dinner before the deacon's meeting and uh, discuss a few things there. But we were sitting there in the booth, and, and we just finished our meal, and somehow the subject came up, I don't know exactly why, but the subject came up about whether I would consider leaving Berean. And I think the deacons were kind of feeling me out a little bit and trying to push me out the door somewhat, and so they wanted to know, well, well how would you feel about that? Well, and I'm talking to them. I didn't tell them. I didn't tell them what I was really thinking at that time, but uh, I don't because I don't like deacons. <laughs> but uh, I didn't. I didn't tell them. Express this, but I. But I think about it a lot. I have great difficulty thinking about leaving, even when I think about sometimes going on vacation, and I'm going. I'm leaving tomorrow and going to be gone for a week or so. Uh, sometimes and, and most of the time, leaving Berean 
and being in somebody else's church or, or traveling, whatever, and away from God's people here, I, I don't like that because I have strong feelings of affection for the people of Berean. I mean, I even like Democrats that are here. I don't know why. I, I do. But I have this strong feeling of affection in it for the fellowship of our people. So bowels and mercies, this is what he's talking about. He means tenderness and affection. And that's what you get when you're a part of a church. And if you don't get that and you don't feel that, then you're not receiving the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Or I should say you're not following the leadership of the Holy Spirit because he's always willing to lead you. But you're not following the Spirit's leadership if you're not getting feelings of affection in your church from the people of God. So Paul says, these are the arguments I'm presenting to you. If these things are true, if all of these things are true, then why won't that lead to perfect unity among the membership of the church? Consider all the arguments, and he says it should lead you to a life becoming of Christian unity. Now let's go into the second part of the message. This is going to be much, much more go much more quickly than the first part. But let's look at verse number 2, and I want to give you the response to the reasons. How do you respond to these reasons? He says in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. The greatest joy that Paul could have was to see the unity of God's people. Now, there's danger for disunity, as I said at the beginning, and that's true for the church at Philippi or for any church. No matter how strong a church may be, there's always that danger of disunity. It appears that in the church at Philippi, this was about to crop up. And so Paul addresses it because he knows that there's a problem there. Now, this particular problem is between two ladies that are in the church. In verse number, or chapter 4, if you want to just peek over there, chapter 4, verse number 2, he says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they may be of the same mind in the Lord. So evidently, maybe there's some kind of contention there, and he's telling them they need to have unity. So what, are, what is the correct response to these reasons that we've given? Well, first of all, would be common thoughts. He says, be like-minded, and that means to think the same thing. Whenever we have disagreements in the church, what we really ought to do is make a very honest attempt to see things the same way. As I said before, when we're talking about the essential doctrinal matters, we don't have any choice in that. We have to have agreement. Every major doctrine we have to be in agreement on, and that means if we're going to be in agreement on them, you've got to start out being in agreement with me because I'm the one who teaches you those major doctrines. So you can't, you can't have a different opinion on these things than I have, and you have to have an agreement that I'm following the Bible, that I am teaching the truth, because if you don't think that, every time that I get up into the pulpit, my sermons are not exhortation for you, they're irritation. You won't like what I have to say, you won't be happy here, because we don't have that agreement in doctrine. Now remember this, though, the Holy Spirit... One of us is not following the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not going to lead us in different directions. It's the same Spirit that works in all. So if I'm going the right way and you're in agreement with me, hopefully we're both following the Holy Spirit. So if there is a doctrine that causes strife among us, then one of us is not following the Spirit. If that's a major doctrinal matter, then uh, we need to get that thing worked out. But there are times when there are things that we disagree on, and we just agree to disagree. 
And they're not major, major doctrinal matters. We just agree that we're going to disagree. And we don't let those kinds of things cause strife in the church. But as I say that, even in the things where you disagree with me, you don't have the right to go to members of the church and say, I disagree with the pastor on that. Especially if you haven't come to me first and talked to me about that, then you should not cause any kind of strife by saying you disagree with the pastor on uncertain issues. I mean, we ought to talk those kinds of things out. But there will be times where we have differences of opinion on certain things. And I accept that. For instance, when we're we're studying the book of Revelation on Sunday nights, and uh, you might hear an interpretation of of something that I've said that you like better because you heard it from somebody else, or maybe you've been taught a little bit differently, and uh, you you think the other interpretation is better. That's okay with me. I mean, it's okay with me if you're wrong and whoever else you're following is wrong. That's all right. You can do that. I don't think that it's totally necessary that we be in perfect agreement on things that that the Bible does not nail down and nobody knows for sure. And so we can agree to disagree. But what we shouldn't ever do is to get sideways on those issues and get into arguments with one another. Now, the second thing that we ought to have here, a response to the reason, is we need to have or should have corporate love. And I don't mean love for corporations and love for stocks and bonds. That's not what I mean. I mean uh, the response as a body of Christians is love. He says having the same love. And I think that that means sharing the love of Christ and sharing our love that we have in Christ. That, that's certainly important. But I also think it means that we are to love one another equally. On a human level, that is totally impossible. We're just not going to love people equally, and that's because some people aren't as lovable as other people. And so we're just not going to do it. But if you look or think on Christ's level, if you're here on on the Christian level, Christ's level where we should be, we all need to realize that the weakest person among us who is saved is just as much a child of God as the strongest person among us that's saved. We're all equal in in God's eyes in that respect. So God doesn't say, well, I love this member of the church better than I love that member of the church. That isn't true. The love that Christ has for us is an equal love. Now, what differs is fellowship, because there certainly is a difference in fellowship with Christ. And when we're not pleasing to him, we're not walking his way, fellowship with Christ can be broken, but the love is not diminished in any sense of the word. For instance, uh, with, with my children and, and, and with yours as well, I'm sure, sometimes your kids don't do what you want them to do, and so you have to punish them. But you would never act like, or I hope you wouldn't say to your child, that I don't love you as much as your brother or your sister because they, they obey better than you do. We wouldn't do that. Our love is not diminished even though the fellowship might be broken. And that's the same thing that we have in a church. So you take people that are really mean and ornery in the church, but they're Christians, we still have to love them. we still got to treat them in the right way. And so what you might have to do sometimes, just go up to that person and hug them as hard as you can and squeeze some of the meanness out of them. You might try that. But we're to love everybody equally. The third thing, that third response in this, is to have a cooperative spirit. Paul says, of one accord and of one mind. We have this one common purpose in our church. We have one mission statement. We're not trying to go off in different directions and figure out what God wants us to do as a church. We all have 
one thing in mind. We have a cooperative spirit to get to that one goal. Now, some churches, uh, people are there for the social aspect of things, and that's why they go to church. Some people are there for the entertainment. They, they like what goes on in church in that sense. And still, there are other people that go to church, and they're there because of a sense of obligation. And we could probably find many, many different reasons for why people go to church. But there shouldn't be anyone in Berean Baptist Church who does not know our chief purpose. Now, don't get confused about it because there are a lot of sub-purposes that that are involved to get to the main purpose, but we all know what the main purpose is. You already should have it filled out. You already should know what it is. Our purpose is to glorify God. And if you haven't got that from my preaching, I might as well sit down right now and stop because I can't teach you anything if we haven't learned to glorify God. And so what we do in our singing, in our preaching, in our teaching, in our praying, in our witnessing, all of that is for the purpose of glorifying God. And so our response to these reasons that Paul has given is that we are to think alike, we're to love one another equally, and we're to cooperate in the work that God has given us to do as his church. When we do that, we will glorify God and we'll solve this problem that Paul's trying to teach in the book of Philippians. How can you be happy? How can you put yourself second and still be happy? That's what he's teaching here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word that you've given us. And, and help us, Lord, that we would have this unity of the Spirit, that we would recognize how we are to love one another, cooperate with one another. And the foundation of it all is the faith that we have in Jesus Christ Bless our people in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.